Okay, so um, uh, Isaac from the Torah is a decidedly more difficult character to try to unravel than Abraham. Uh, if you look at kind of the contrast between the stories of Abraham, um, a lot of epic stories, and a lot of drama, you open up the Midrash, you find even more. A, um, with Isaac, you don't really find almost anything. It's very, very, very little, very scant details. And all the stories that he's participating, he's almost uh, like a secondary character. Uh, for example, if you look at the story of the binding of, of Isaac, so the Akedas Yitzchak, if you look at it from the Torah's perspective, it's Abraham's test. The Almighty tells him, go sacrifice your son for me, and it's a big test for him, and he has to take his son, and he has to sacrifice him, and at the last minute, the 90th minute, he gets a reprieve, and it's just, wow, Abraham and his dedication to mission. Uh, but Isaac is also a player, and in fact, Isaac was one who was willingly going, despite the fact that his father was going to execute him, and he must have also had this tremendous belief and dedication to mission, yet it's presented as Abraham's story from his perspective, his timeline, and uh, his vantage point, and he's the hero. Um, so even in the story that would be, I think, emblematic of Isaac's greatness, it's known as the story of, of Abraham. Um, additionally, the, the other major stories that we have, we have the story of um, the wells, very bizarre in intercession, where we're talking about Isaac and he had two kids, and then we have this long narrative about him digging wells, and the wells being filled up, and it's very bizarre. It seems a little bit out of place. And the last major episode that we find with Isaac is the story of the blessings, which, of course, Isaac seems to be removed from. It's more the activities of, of Jacob and Esau and, of course, Rebekah as well. So I think before we even get started, we have to realize that there's something different about Isaac, and we're going to try to understand, try to understand what that is. Um, what, why is it so mysterious? What is his role exactly? Uh, and of course, there's a few questions as well that are fundamental questions, uh, because the, the Torah seems to present Isaac not just uh, in, uh, in shrouding his story, but also it seems like it downplays his accomplishments and it amplifies his failures or perceived failures. Uh, as an example, we're told that Isaac and Rebecca have two, two children, two sons, twins, uh, that uh, are remarkably different. You know, Jacob is the studious one, he's the pious one, he sits in the tent. And Esau, Esau, he's the one who's out, he's, he's a hunter, he's you know, very earthly, and, uh, you know, he's the one who's involved in everything besides for the spiritual pursuits. And Rebecca likes, she, you know, she loves Jacob. And the Torah says is that Isaac loved Esau because Esau made him delicious food. Now, for the Torah to say that someone likes someone, especially someone who we know is called in Jewish literature as Esau Harasha, Esau the wicked. It's almost like a, like, a, like a Russian, like Ivan the Terrible. He's, like, he's called Esau the Terrible. That's what he's called. And uh, to, to, to tell us that 
Isaac loved Esau because he made him delicious food, it's very, very biting and harsh criticism. And the question is, like, so what, so what is he? Was he someone who was just taken by the food that Esau made? It seems to be very, very strange, especially because we know, like, Isaac is one of our forefathers. Yeah, it's usually a woman that's... that's that's attributed to the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Yeah, but to say someone like uh, someone who's a who's a, a, a titan, a, a giant, one of our forefathers, the, the, one of the individuals that is building the spiritual nature of our nation that exists till today, is someone who is confused that he mistakes, you know, Isaac as being uh, Esau as being righteous. And he is being, he's biased because Esau made some food. It's a very harsh criticism. Maybe it is that he recognizes something in his son that he does not find within himself. Well, but the question is what it is. You're giving a solution. But I think the question is one to appreciate. Just whatever the answer is, there's a lot of attempts to try to answer this question. But this is a fundamental theme throughout the story of Isaac is it's that... A fundamental theme throughout humanity. Fair, but you know, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are put on a pedestal as being the forebears of our nation and the builders of our nation. And the fact that the Torah goes out of its way to point out flaws or perceived flaws in his character is of note. Um, additionally, another critical insight is that it never compliments Isaac. Never. The Torah never compliments him. Whenever it discusses uh, uh, when, when the Almighty when the makes a, pr- a, pl- a promise to Isaac like he makes to Jacob and to Abraham before him, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, al- it always highlights you know, the fact because Abraham is so dedicated and because he's so committed and because he gave up so much, that's why he gets X, Y, and Z. Whenever it says that about Isaac, it says, because of Abraham. So it, 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 it never highlights his greatness. And we only get a little, a few hints of it throughout the narrative. So the, the, I think the fundamental question about Abraham is about Isaac is, what it, what exactly did he contribute towards the building of the Jewish people, and why does the Torah relate to him in such a such a bizarre, you know, odd way, where his, his you know his accomplishments are obscured, and the Torah is going out of a way to out of its way to find. His flaws. You may even get in this, but you know, I was thinking about this too. That Abraham's name was changed by God. Jacob's name was changed. Israel, Isaac's the only one whose name was changed. Yes. So there's this this idea of of Isaac being very static. So there's another example. We're told that Abraham was born in Urkastim. He went to Haran. And then he went to Israel, but when he was Israel, he went to Egypt for a little bit and went back. Jacob, of course, is born in Israel, but then he descends to Egypt. Isaac is born in Israel and never leaves Israel. In fact, when he wants to leave, one episode that we are told about briefly, he wants to leave because there's a famine. And the Almighty says, no, 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 you have to stay here. You can't leave. Isaac was never allowed to leave Israel. So there is this idea of Isaac being... Static, whereas Abraham and Jacob are dynamic. And I think that plays into the bigger picture of what his role is exactly. So, so I think the point, the fact that his name wasn't changed, is along those same lines. 
Now, I want to go back to, to Isaac, to Abraham a little bit, because, you know, the idea of the binding of Isaac, I think it's obviously germane to our subject. We didn't really get to it last week. The idea of a test is a, is a, a critical theme in the story of Abraham. Like we mentioned last week, he was given ten tests, uh, and the last test was the binding of, of Isaac. Um, now, we're, of course, told about this uh, in detail in Abraham's storyline, and that, of course, has relevance to us, because whatever Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did relates to us as well. This is an overall theme in Genesis, and that is that it's called in Hebrew, Ma'aseh Avot Siman Lebanim. The activities of the fathers is a guiding light for the children. Everything that Abram, Isaac, and Din and they accomplished became built in into the spiritual fabric of our nation. The Talmud tells us that whoever is not by Shanim Rachmanim Gomlei Chasadim, this is from the book of Yevamos 69a, whoever is, it was popularized recently by a, a song, but um, very interesting idea. Whoever is not Baishanim, which means uh, bashful, Rachmanim is merciful, and Gomelech Hazadim is benevolent, is not a descendant of Abraham. It means if you see someone who is cruel, just this week, we had a terrible tragedy in Israel, it's a bunch of terrible tragedies in Israel, but there was a 17-year-old terrorist, Arab terrorist, who climbed a security fence in a Jewish, uh, you know, Jewish uh, settlement, broke into a house, and stabbed to death a 13-year-old girl in her sleep. In a room with other kids. Now, that heinous cruelty is not possible for the Jewish people. We, we can't do that. We could be bad people. We could be, you know, we could be in violation of multiple SEC regulations. We could do a lot of terrible things, but but cruelty is not one of them. Could you make me. an argument that the assassin of um, of uh, Rob, uh, yeah, Rabin was? Um, no. Listen, not, yeah, we not, have bad people, not of course. Quite that morbid, but, of course, but, but like to stab an uh, innocent child no, in their sleep. I, you know, we talk about the, the, even if you know, know someone is going to be evil, you can't, you would wake them up at least and at least, at least give them a chance, right? It's just, it's, un, it's unfathomable cruelty, barbarism. It's unfathomable. Just a bloodlust that we don't have. We don't have that. You know, when we go into war, sometimes you know, in war people die and it's, ter- it's terrible. But to us, like, we, we don't relish that. We don't look for innocent casualties, but the idea of someone could stab an innocent child in, in the middle, middle of the sleep is something that's unthinkable for us. And you have these barbarians, these animals, that, that, you know, and they're heroes. It's just unbelievable how two people living in close proximity to each other can be so different innately. And we're told in the Talmud that if someone is cruel, if someone is, doesn't have the quality of, 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 of mercy... They're not Jewish, which is interesting. Like, how, how do we know? Maybe they are Jewish. The answer is, is that we, we go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're building the nation 
from the ground up, like from the internal spiritual makeup of the people. If people are not like that, then they're obviously not from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, so, I don't remember how we got to this, but, oh, so the tests of Abraham are very relevant to us. Because you actually, if you examine the tests of Abraham one by one, you'll notice that these, each test represents a different quality of the Jewish, um, the Jewish spiritual makeup and the Jewish tests that we've had and we've withstood throughout history. Now, Isaac is the same way. Isaac is not highlighted in the Torah, but you look at Isaac. Imagine your dad's walking with you. We're going on a little spazier. We're going on a hike. So we have your, your dad and you, your half-brother Ishmael, and Abraham's assistant, Eliezer. You have a donkey, and we're going for a trip. Right? How nice. It's the summer. <laughs> this is what we do. You get, you're traveling for three days, and... Abraham stops the caravan and he sees a mountain. On the mountain he sees a cloud. And he asks Isaac, do you see the cloud? Or do you see what I see? He says, yeah, I see what you see. He asks Ishmael, do you see what I see? No, what do you see? He says, I just see a mountain. He asks Eliezer, do you see what I see? No. No, he doesn't know. No, I don't. I tell you, you guys stay here with a donkey. We're going to go. Isaac's 37 years old at the time. 37? Yes. Now, they go up, they take some provisions with them. Take a bunch of wood, take a really long, sharp knife, and they head up. And halfway up, they, Isaac says, Dad, wait, wait a minute, slow down. We're going up there to do some sort of ritual, some sort of sacrifice, but I don't see any animal. And... Uh, Abraham tells him, he says, yeah, the Almighty will show us the animal. Wink, wink, wink. You know, he's uh, telling him, it's going to be you, baby. (laughs) And the Torah points out is that they were walking together, they had this conversation, and they continue walking together. What does that show about Isaac? Like, Isaac is willing to walk. Risking his life. Risking his life because this is what the Almighty wants. Okay. Can it be construed that at that time we all know people were living in the hundreds at that time? So was thirty-seven at that time maybe six or something? I mean, I'm just. Wondering. I know, but your inference is that it's going that Abraham is suggesting to Isaac that he's, he gets to be the the lamb. The lamb. Thank you. I don't think that well, viewed it that way. Well, all. we don't see any resistance of Isaac. Exactly, and clearly the human spirit would be to be self-protective. To be That's true, but, but, but let's, look, let's look at this in the context of, of, of Jewish history. How many times in Jewish history has a Jew been faced with the ultimate test, and that is your faith or your life? You can only have one. Many times. Many millions of times throughout history. It's true, and that's a fact. That's a that's so a historical we been, fact. We have been martyrs. This is his so. Whatever, whatever. It, let, let, you know, uh, the historical fact is that that's been a, a, a constant, with the exception of the last hundred years. Every time the Jewish, almost every time, the Jews have been uh, mercilessly um, 
you know, various degrees of, 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 of abuse and torture and slaughter, they've been presented with the option, you convert, you become a Muslim, you're good, you become a Christian, you're good, you get baptized, you're okay. And invariably, I'm sorry? There isn't any other example in, um, in Torah of a sacrifice of a human. No, and this is also, the there's not, this is the only one and it didn't even go through. But what we do see is that Isaac was presented with the same choice. Remember, his dad is old at the time. If, if he, he could have overpowered his dad and escaped. Yet Isaac was the one who developed into the Jewish psyche, into the Jewish spiritual DNA, the idea of my faith is more important than my life. And that is a tremendous idea. Like that, that insight is like, of course, we have this instinct of self-preservation. All humans do. But the Jews innately have a certain commitment of, of, to our faith that supersedes our life. And we find countless examples of, 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 of Jews in entire communities wherein they were faced with this terrible, terrible choice, and they opted to give up their lives for God. Where did that come from? Huh? Well, Masada is one example. But Masada is one example that was that was that you know that's that's a glorified example. God put it in us. It comes from from Abraham. From, I guess. But we look at Isaac. Isaac was the first one who was willing to die in martyrdom for God. And you know what? That even though it didn't go through, but that a spiritual achievement accrued. To, Rabbi Kiva, exactly. Rabbi Kiva said, I'm studying Torah. That's right. I'm studying Torah, even though the Romans say whoever studies Torah gets executed. And you know what? He did. He got executed. But he was joyous because he did what Isaac, exactly, what Isaac implanted in us, and that is to give up our lives for God. He knows his namesake. That's right. And that, I think, is is a very remarkable idea. But the the idea in general is when we look at our forefathers, and what it teaches us is something that's a constant. Now, before Abraham dies, so he actually remarries a woman, or marries a woman named Keturah. After Sarah died, he marries a woman Keturah. That Keturah actually happens to be the same Hagar, but the Keturah is a nickname for various reasons. And he has a bunch more kids with her. This is at the end of Chayesara, of the, of, of the Torah portion called Chayesara. But there's a critical sentence here. Abraham, so this is chapter 25. Abraham proceeded to take a wife whose name was Keturah. And he had a, a bunch of kids, Zimron, right, uh, Yachshan, Maddan, Midian, all these kids he had, etc. And then it says as follows, very important sentence here. Uh, verse 5. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the concubine children who Abraham's, Abraham gave gifts. So Abraham is making his estate plan. And Abraham was someone who was remarkably accomplished in every area of life. Uh, he was very wealthy. He was a, a leader of multiple nations. He was a visionary. He was a statesman. You know, he was a big name. When he divvied up his legacy, he gave everything to, to Isaac. Now, but he gave other things to, 
the other kids? What did he give to them? Well, he gave them other things, but what that is is a big question. But his legacy passes on to Isaac. Now, that thing that he gave to Isaac is what is known as the blessing of Abraham. This, we're going to revisit this again. Abraham's blessing, what Abraham stands uh, alone, he's unique, his role in history, everything that's Abraham, everything that Abraham represents, he gave to Isaac. Of course, there were other things that he gave to other kids. But what is uniquely Abraham's, he gave to Isaac. Uh, so what does that mean? It means to be the forbearer of the nation that is going to ultimately complete what Abraham began. Indeed, the other nations demonstrate a lot of Abrahamic qualities to them, but they're not the Abrahamic nation. They're not, they don't have the blessing of Abraham. They're not going to have the land of Israel, for example. That's always linked with the blessing of Abraham. Multiple times, Abraham's told, your kids will have this land. This is the blessing of, uh, of Abraham. Uh, and that was given uh, to Isaac. And that's a very important point to remember to try to unpack the problems that we're going to encounter with Isaac, especially vis-a-vis his relationship with his two sons. Because if you actually look at the verses very critically, it's abundantly clear that Isaac never intended to give Esau the blessing of Abraham. He never intended to give it to Esau. What he, did, what he intended to give to Esau was something entirely different, and Jacob managed to get both blessings with some trickery. And from help from his mama, some insight. Okay, so let's, let's, let's go through the story of, of, of Isaac and, uh, and Rebecca. So what, we start off with Isaac, and he is also an interesting little vignette, tidbit, tidbit about Isaac, is that he's the first to have a circumcision at eight days. The Torah goes out of his way to point that out. Uh, which is which is interesting. It's like this, this is the mitzvah that's emblematic of the Jewish nation, and he was the first one to get that at eight days. So Abraham had it as an adult, uh, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, okay. Was it? Uh, we talked about that one time. Oh, I might. Have, I don't recall that. I might have missed that. Right. Abraham was ninety-nine when he had his circumcision, his breast. No anesthetic at that time. Yeah, and despite the fact that a couple of day, and a couple of days later, after he has his bris milah, he's outside trying to solicit guests, which is an incredible story. That's why, that's why he sent him three That's right. He reminded him of three angels. That's right. Okay, so the, the next thing we find out about Isaac is that he was weaned. So we assume he's two or three years old. He's weaned, and then Abraham makes a big party. And the next thing we find out is that there is some sort of bad influence that Isaac's elder brother, Ishmael, is wielding over him. And then Ishmael gets expelled. Um, how old Isaac is at that time, it's, it's a little bit unclear. But that's really the three stories that we find out about Isaac. That's all we know. He was born, he had a bris, he was weaned, and he was a reset, or there was a potential of him being influenced negatively by his older half-brother, and his older half-brother was kicked away. Yeah. I always thought uh, Hagar and Ishmael were sent off when they were younger, but you said that Ishmael was with uh, Isaac when they were going up the mountain with, uh, with Abraham? Yeah, because he must have come back. Because remember, Sarah, you know... Ishmael was with, was there when Isaac yes. was Yes, well, he was there at the foot of the mountain. Okay, you see, and that 
Now, I didn't remember that or know that, but that some of the Muslims, uh, don't they say that it wasn't Isaac, it was Ishmael being sacrificed? Well, they also say that there was no uh, temples on... Well, uh, I know that, but I mean... A, a fact does not necessarily I under, okay. play a part but in I determining... I didn't know that Ishmael was anywhere near there. That's interesting. Yes, yeah, so, yes. Does the text say anything about Hagar and Ishmael being sent away... And anything about the return? Because I thought they were um, banished. banished, if you will, exiled. Yeah, I don't remember them coming back. That's yes. an important factor. Right, but that the, but she was banished twice. Yeah, yeah. Right. So first time she went on her own volition, and second time she went. Uh, she went. Uh, well, I assume that she wasn't banished entirely. She was banished just from being in close proximity uh, to Isaac as he was growing up. But, but I would assume when once Isaac is thirty-seven years old, he's an adult, and we're not worried about the influence that Ishmael's going to have on him. That's what I would assume. You know, at the age of four or five or whatever, he's much more impressionable, and it's much more dangerous to have bad influences. But once he's older, he's evolved in the world and. That's what I would assume. Okay, so that's all we know about, uh, about, uh, about Isaac until the episode of the binding of Isaac. Once that storyline is done, we have the storyline of finding a spouse for Isaac. Very, very interesting and very long and drawn-out story. Uh, Isaac is not really part of this uh, because... Abraham employs Eliezer, his proxy, to find a spouse for Isaac. And it's interesting. He tells him, like, I want you to go back to my family. Don't get a wife for Isaac from the Canaanite women. I want you to go to my family, to my birthplace, and find someone there. And incidentally, of course, we know that he actually marries his first cousin. Abraham married his niece, and Isaac married his first cousin because his mother, Rebecca, Sorry, his mother. Sarah. His mother. Slow down. How do we do this? No. So was he, uh, did he marry his first cousin, or his sister. first cousin was? I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm sister. blanking on the time. Brother or sister? That's right. Yeah. So I yeah. think it might have been a first cousin or first cousin was removed. Either way, he marries his. Uh, he marries his. He marries his cousin. Of course, Jacob is also going to marry his cousin, because Jacob's mother, Rebecca. Her brother Laban's uh, daughters are Rachel and Leah. So there's this idea of Abraham was very wary of who his son is going to marry, and who, of course, that played a part in determining who Jacob's going to marry. Both Abraham and Isaac tell their kids not to marry Canaanite women and to go back to their family and find someone, which is an interesting idea. Um, now, Eliezer heads to find a spouse. He goes, ends up at the well. Not the first well we're going to see. Not the last well we're going to see today. Uh, and he makes this uh, plan of action. He has this prayer. He tells the Almighty, I want you to find me a spouse uh, for Isaac. And I'm going to devise this test to determine the worthiness of a potential spouse. What's the test? 
the girl, I'm going to ask her for water, and she's going to say, oh, I'll give you water, and then she'll say, on her own volition, I'll actually give all your camels as well. Now, why was that test the one that was used? So Rashi tells us is that Abraham's home and household was built upon the foundation of chesed, of kindness. Thus, if this woman, if this girl, who's going to be Rebecca, of course, if she demonstrates the quality of kindness, then she's worthy to be in, uh, in Abraham's house and marry Isaac and, and to have con- continuity uh, to that ideal. So, of course, what happens is as he finishes prayer, miracle of all miracles, you know, what's out, Rebecca, she's carrying a big jug. He sees her and he's taken by her, very beautiful. He runs up to her and, you know, he gives her jewelry before even finding out anything bad, which is also an interesting idea. I kind of like that. <laughs> you like it, huh? The jewelry before anything, huh? So, uh, he says to her, Do you give me some water? She runs and gives him water and she says, oh, I'm going to give your camel's water as well. Now, what's interesting about that is that she shows the quality of kindness not in merely being solicited and responding favorably, but also to notice what other people need without being told. The quality of kindness that is, that is being sought over here is not that someone is willing to help when they're presented with an opportunity to help, to help Rather, it's they're helping because on their own, they're noticing what someone else needs. Now, I, 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 I want to go with this two ways. I think it's possible that this quality was absolutely necessary for the spouse of, of Isaac. If we're going to build the Jewish nation on the foundation of kindness... It's very important to find someone who's super kind to get this kitsch started. But I also want to say perhaps a little bit differently. Perhaps we could say really a lesson for us. The lesson for us is that to be a good spouse, that is predicated on being kind. If you're kind, the way Rebecca is defined as kind, and that is to notice what other people need before they need. Well, how do you notice what someone else needs unless you're told? That's only possible if you're selfless, if you're always thinking about other people. So maybe this is more of a global lesson that's very valuable for us. To be a good spouse, it's only possible if you're kind, because kind, the way the Torah defines kindness, right, is linked with selflessness. Because if you're selfish... You'll never notice the needs of others, certainly not unless you're told about them. And would you say that even at that time, which I think we can all agree was a probably slightly more uh, chauvinistic era than it is now, uh, you, you, you were very careful to say the word be a good spouse. Oh, yeah. Not be a good wife. Of course not. Per se. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, the, 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 the focus was on Rebecca here. Well, Isaac did grow up in Abraham's home. We can assume he was that he... Kind himself, so that's right. You know, and we, we, I think we have to teach our kids as well that when someone comes in, someone comes in uh, to visit your house, you offer them water, right? You don't say, uh, you don't wait for them to ask you, right? 
I think it's an indictment. If, if you have a guest coming to your house, especially in Houston, right, and they ask you for water, I think it's an indictment on your kindness that you didn't think of it before that. And if they have camels, you should offer their camels as well. He's anytime someone comes with camels to our house, you got to take care of the camel. Go ahead. Go. Well, Open. you don't have, we don't fill up gas uh, for when guests come over. Uh, you gas up their car if you had a- Yeah, who knows? Maybe like in, fi- <laughs> in 50 years, it's going to be to plug in their electric vehicle. Quickly, go plug in their electric vehicle. Yes. <laughs> it will drive me driving Tesla. You know, but to, to be, to have a successful marriage, it demands a uh, yielding a little bit of our own individuality and opening ourselves to other people. How do we do that? How, if we're selfish and we're only focusing inwardly, we're going to have a very hard time because we're going to have to cut through that and um, we're going to have to, uh, you know, we're going to ha- it, face resistance. Dan learned the lesson of kindness yeah, very well right there. Well, you know, there was something in the literature just about hospitality and that hospitality first begins with Abraham. Oh, but that was one story. But that story, the story is emblematic of his, yes, epitomizes him, yes. So I, I think that's an interesting idea we can really take away from this. Like this, the Torah's demon is a very detailed narrative of courtship. Because it's showing us the methodology that works for us. You know, you look at, at, at marriage and divorce in America. What is abundantly clear is that Americans and really Westerners in general are very bad at either spousal selection or spousal maintenance. That's a fact. The numbers demonstrate that. <coughs> and, I, and we see a story from antiquity that if we just follow it, you know, the, the odds of success will go through the roof. Like, he came with an approach. Like, how interesting is that? Eliezer says, I have a game plan of what I'm going to do to find a spouse. And I'm thinking about this rationally. I know that he needs a certain kind of girl. And that is going to create a, a positive uh, marriage. Your brother came here one time and he did a presentation in your absence on choosing a spouse. Oh, I remember it that. It was fascinating. Well. I remember that. that was I mean, his, yeah. his process, if you will, was quite different. Very old school. It, it was well, is it... But the question is... is Old school is typically viewed as being worse than the new age, but it was just really different. Right, and but what the, what is I think we have to all agree is that whatever we're doing collectively as a society, it's bad because it doesn't work. What, like if there's any other area where there was such regression, we would say let's try to fix this, and somehow people are like, no, we don't want to go to old school. But old school actually works, and it makes sense. It's logical to say, you know, would you find, would you, like, select a cardiologist the way you select, most people select spouses? Why not? Like, what's, you know, the cardiologist, they're all cardiologists, right? No, I want to have a second opinion. I want to, you know, I want to, you know, you approach it very cognitively, but the most important decision of your life 
people just are emotional about it, and it's so bizarre. It's just bizarre to me. And we see like he has an approach, and it says like this is what this is what he needs, but maybe this is what we all need. And he made a devised a test, but which is a way to find. He experimented. Isn't that a smart way to do it? And he got what he what you know he and it worked. And this is a model that we can use as well. Would it have been common for fathers to choose their sons' spouses? Well, so. So it's, I'm saying you have to, um, it's, there's actually a law prohibiting arranged marriages so, uh, in the Torah. There's, there's, so, everything was arranged. No, 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 no. So they could be arranged, the, the meeting could be arranged, but they actually met and, uh, and he was, uh, she was independently vetted by him and he was independently vetted by her. But uh, it was pretty clear after the thorough investigation of Eliezer uh, that Eliezer did that she was a very good candidate. She was from the family of of, of Abraham, a, a, a woman of remarkable quality and character, and she was worthy of of, of doing it. So it was you know it was just uh, you know it was basically a done deal, but he had to sign off on it, and so did she. And how old was he? Freedom to say no. Of course. And how old was he when he met Rebecca? He was forty. So how old she was is a little bit unclear. There are opinions that say she was very young. Some opinions say she's a little bit older. So it's a big question. Three. Yes, so there is, there is a tradition that says that she was three, which is young. There is a tradition that says that she was three. Other opinions say she was 13. Well, we know she was three. No three-year-old Well, she was remarkable, right? But that, I'm saying, this, is, this is a discussion of how old she no, was because there are well Rebecca is obviously somebody who is mature beyond her years regardless of if she was she three was she 13 was she you know but you know but she was uh, you know a, a, a woman that from day one was destined for greatness that makes that, that's clear Mohammed look a little better because he supposedly had seven-year-olds, but uh, yeah, he liked them young, I don't no? Think she was well, either way, this is a discussion about about that. It's not it's not so clear. Now, what happens when they meet? Also, very interesting. So we're told that. Um, so finally, there's a whole negotiation. She agrees to go. Everyone agrees. She agrees to send her off. And uh, this is chapter twenty-four. Verse 63. Uh, and Isaac went out to pray in the field towards evening. And he raised his eyes and saw, and camels were coming. He sees the caravan coming back. So first, firstly, it's interesting, the, the, the words that the Torah uses to describe Abraham's prayer is lasuach. Lasuach basada, which means uh, to converse with God. This is another hint that we get in the text about about uh, Isaac's greatness. And of course, the critical question of why we're only getting hints of it is still quite, we haven't answered that yet. But Isaac is praying in conversation form. When we pray, it's a little bit awkward. Because we're talking to God, 
but we cannot see God. So there's an element of faith that's baked into prayer. And that's by design. When Isaac would pray, he would pray the form of a conversation. To Isaac, the fact that he was talking to God was as real as the fact that I could talk, be talking to you. It was a conversation for him. So just that one word of how the Torah describes his prayer, we get a little hint of what his spiritual character was. Now what happens? The procession of camels with, the, all the, with Eliezer and his men and, of course, Rebekah is approaching. And Rebekah sees Isaac and she falls off the camel. Which is always a funny first date story, I guess. Now, why does, why, does, um, why does Rebecca fall off the camel? So, so this is once again another hint of what Isaac was really like. Isaac was someone who was like an angel walking on earth. He, his spiritual sensitivity and, and, and reality was so great that when he was praying and people looked at him, they'd never seen him like that before in their lives. You know, he, the, the, the lines between the physical and spiritual was, were blurred. Just like the people couldn't look at, at Moses. Because well, he, he had to put like, something in front of his He had to put a mask. Right, because right, right after he came down from Mount Sinai, he had to, he, his face shined like the sun. That's right. But why? Because his neshama was so overwhelming that it, it just bore through his body. And we see, like, we're told, like, Isaac is praying. Rebecca sees him, and she's, she's taken by it, and she's like, you know, she's, you know she, she, she falls off the camel. My grandfather told a story. He said, like, this interesting story. Um, before the war, there was an entirely different Jewish world than what emerged after the war. It's just fascinating what changed. Uh, but particularly in the, in the yeshiva world, there was, there was two dramatic changes that happened. Um, one good and one, one fantastic, and one maybe less fantastic. <laughs> the thing that was fantastic was the fact that before the war, the amount of, of students in the yeshiva was very small. So if you took all the yeshivas together, there was maybe 1,000 or 2,000 students, what? all told. Now, in the yeshiva that I went to, one yeshiva, there's seven, 8,000 in one yeshiva. And there's maybe 100 or 200,000 yeshiva, uh, yeshiva students, all told. So there's been a tremendous proliferation in numbers. But in quality, there's certainly been a little bit of a dip. Um, because that's just the way it is. If it's... Uh, it's a, it's a different world, of course. Like those, are, those are big questions to try to un- understand. Uh, but my grandfather was in yeshiva, and he said he wanted to go visit Rabarach Ber Leibowitz, who was a famous Rosh Hashiva who lived, who died in 1939. As you look at 1939, and you see a lot of great Torah personalities that died. Uh, it's almost as if the Almighty wanted to, you know, to spare them from what's going to be this tremendous you know, inferno Baruch Bar was one of them. Uh, so you actually can see pictures of him today. My grandfather, actually, when he was a student, he wanted to go visit him. It was like a rite of passage, almost, to go spend some time with a Baruch Bar. Um, you look at pictures of him. He looks, he looks bizarre. But he looks scared because he has nothing to spare. 
Yeah. So you look picture at pictures of him today, and you see there's something different about this. Even even in the pictures that we look at today. Yeah, our, our grandfather. Yes. Your great grandfather, right? You see pictures of him today, and he looks different, but you can't kind of place it. My grandfather says the pictures don't at all tell the story. So he says he went to visit him. They knocked on his door in his house. And uh, him and his friend, they went there for Shabbos. They knocked on his door. He went, they went, like, uh, you know. And he says that he had his back to the door, and his friend was facing the door. So he saw his friend. And Rebarkbar opened the door. And he sees his friend, like, just moving backwards, like, just being taken by the visage of the great rabbi. And he says, like, when you looked at him, and he said, this is someone that is different than the rest of the humans. Like, there's something, there's a spiritual presence that you're with that is just different. And he says, the pictures, the pictures don't, don't, uh, don't display that. And you see, you look at a picture of, of Rabbi Yashiv. Rabbi Yashiv uh, was the un- unparalleled halachic authority for the past, you know, 30 years. He was someone who was, you know, he died at the age of 103 or something like that. And he was like answering the most complex halakha questions up to the age of 103. Unbelievable stuff, you know. And it's, it's, I remember, I remember re- reading the, uh, the newspaper article, like a secular newspaper. It's just so funny how, you know, just ideas that we're not, are not used to hearing so he would have been born in, what, in 1836? Who? Uh, the, the rabbi you're... No, 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 I'm, I'm, no, Rabbi Yashiv. Rabbi Yashiv died in 2012. So he was born oh, in... Okay. He's I, born I, in like I, 19, uh, 1909 or something like that. Right, well, this is a different rabbi. We, okay, I'm sorry. So how alive when he died? Yes. So he... You know, so when he, he was like the leader of the Torah Jewry in Israel... And when he died, they passed it on to the, you know, this, his successor was the next generation, right? Well, how old was he? 99. It was, like, it was like the old guard passed away at 103 and the new guard moved in at 99. And like, to us, it's unimaginable to someone to be at the top of their game mentally, to make critical decisions that affect thousands of people or maybe even tens and hundreds of thousands of people, at the age of 99. It's unbelievable. It's like when they, we don't imagine anything like that. But you see people, but because of their dedication to Torah, that they're just, they're, 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 they are in a different level. And, and you... Okay, or Byron Leibstein, okay, so he's, that must be 105, or 103. I don't know, it's just ridiculous numbers. Went through the Holocaust. You know, he's someone who once... On a Shabbos, when he was in his 30s, or 20s or 30s, he touched his beard, and he plucked out a hair of his beard. On Shabbos, he's not allowed to pluck out a hair of his beard. So he committed, for the rest of his life, he will never touch his beard. And you see, he's, like, he, he's 104 years old, he's, he has like a, a hat, his beard is like a salt and pepper. It's like not white. I was in this house, by the way, this person, I was in his house. The house is the most bare, threadbare house you've ever seen in your life. It's one room, or one and a half rooms. It's totally, it hasn't been updated since probably the 1920s, since when it was built. Okay? He doesn't even have an office. Like, he has a bedroom, which doubles as his office. And he doesn't have a, doesn't have a back of a chair. He sits on his, he sits like this. 
you know, with no back, because it's on his bed. Basically, it's a bed which converts into a couch. You know, frail, 104 years old, mind sharp, like attacked, like you've never seen. I was there. I was in his room. Like you've never seen before. You asked some questions? Yeah, I was there. I was in in the room multiple times. And you see, this is like, where does this come from? Where does this idea of someone who, by the way, looks, if you look, look at him, maybe you'll say, I don't know, is he 70? Is he 75? You know, who probably eats 700 calories a day, you know, maybe even less. You know, he has like a little bit of porridge in the morning and that's it. And mine, like you've never seen before, just sharp, razor sharp, and totally practical, totally pragmatic, like totally understanding, like just, you know, like a, a ascetic on one hand, removed, but totally gets it. Where does this come from? You anyone else like this in the world? It comes from him. It, it comes from their dedication to Torah and to spiritual living a spiritual life, and that changes who they are and it changes the way they look. And I remember going. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I remember going to Bayashif. I'm telling these people these experiences well, that I, I had. I don't understand if it's a sin to you say the whole reason he didn't touch his beard, but that's not a Torah commandment. He he decided to do that. He, he decided. To do that. Yeah. I mean, this is just one example. My point. Know, my point is, is that for your sins that's true. But to him, in his mind, to pluck out a hair of your beard on Shabbos, it, of course, but it is is something which is, it's unthinkable. You know, because he takes it seriously. To him, it's really, God really said you can't do that. So if he takes it seriously and it's really from God, then, it's, then, then if it happens once, you make sure it doesn't happen again, right? It's like the TSA, right? One guy blows up his, 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 his legs, his shoes, or tries to do it. And well, everyone, millions of people take off their shoes, right? Why would you do that? Well, because if it's so bad, if it does happen, you've got to make sure it doesn't happen. One plane being blown up is so terrible that we have to inconvenience millions of passengers for decades. Gives no meaning to the words when they care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, if you if, if you viewed if you viewed plucking out one hair of your of your beard on Shabbos as a terrible travesty and a disaster, you know, in, in those terms, then it would make sense. Only, it only doesn't make sense to us because we don't take it seriously. You must not have sinned in any other way. Well, absolutely. Everyone sins in their own level. Yeah. But the point is, is that this is a real dedication. And we see, I'm telling you, you, you could go visit him, you know, it's, you could go visit him and you see this is people operating with different rules. Like, you wonder, like, do they have the same physiology? Like, how is it possible? Who do you know that's 104 and as, as, as sharp and capable and leader and being, you know, being responsible for, for decisions that are very, very Critical and but, but but very nuanced and all the different factors. How about physically? Movement. Was he able to get yeah, around? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Well, Doctor DeBakey, I think, was well into his nineties operating on people. Uh, I think so. You know, there is precedent for it, but it's very rare, obviously. But, uh, yeah, it's but but you you know, you see this with people today that even today it's possible with a dedication to your spiritual life 
in the form of Torah and mitzvahs and, and, and kindness and prayer to become actually different physiologically. And Isaac was like that. Isaac had a spiritual countenance that Rebecca had never seen before. She sees it and she's just taken aback and she falls off her camel. Now, okay, so what else happens here? So they get married. We're told about their love story. And we spoke about it when we spoke about love. And their marriage seems to be going fine. It's just that she's barren. That she's not having any kids. In fact, for 20 years, she didn't have any children. Now, we're told that they prayed to have children. He prayed, she prayed, and the Almighty listened to his prayer, and she conceived. She had had twins. Now, why would the Almighty listen to his prayer and not to her prayer? Well, but she was also great. She was great. He was, you know, she was great as well. But the Torah stresses that the Almighty, that they both prayed, but the Almighty listened to him. So Rashi asked that question. He said something very interesting, which is also a little bit off-putting, at least initially. <clears throat> Why would the Almighty accept his prayer and not her prayer? Or at least not her prayer to the degree that she would become pregnant because of that. <coughs> and Rashi says as follows, that the prayer of a tzaddik of a righteous person, the son of a righteous person is more potent than the prayer of a righteous person, the son of a wicked person. Rebecca's family, indeed it was a family of Abraham, but her dad was not anywhere near the the character of Abraham. Um, When... um He tried to even poison, we're told in the Midrash, he tried to poison... Eliezer, because he wanted to steal all his stuff. You know he didn't have any. He did, yeah. So, <coughs> but I, wouldn't the opposite make more sense? Wouldn't the rags to riches, wouldn't the rags to riches um, story of the righteous, the son of a wicked person, be even more potent? No, but... That's that that you know that's that's like a moral question, but I, I'm saying I'm thinking like in the spiritual realm, shouldn't? I know. I think there's both because Yisroel was also uh, a tzaddik. Tzaddik, also So what? But but was Yitzchak a bigger tzaddik than Rivka, than Rebecca? I don't know. That's not what it says. It says they are equal, but his dad was more righteous than her dad. So it's, 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 oh, because he. Because he learned more Torah than... Yeah, but uh, that's not what it says. Then it should say that Yitzchak was greater than Rivka. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that Yitzchak, that Isaac was greater than Rebekah. It says that Isaac was a tzaddik, Rebekah was a tzaddik. The only difference... Tzaddikus. The only difference is that Isaac's father was also a tzaddik, and Rebekah's father was not. That's the only difference. So my grandfather suggested a very novel idea here. He said that, what does it mean to pray? To pray means to submit yourself before God. It's to humble yourself to say, I am dependent on God for everything. That's what it means to pray. Your life is not a given. Your prosperity is not assured. Your health 
is not something you take for granted. You're entitled to nothing. Everything you have is from God. To do that, you have to humble yourself. Yeah, we're in humble today. That's right. That's right. You gotta make yourself humble. That's right. So we have an easy time here. We gotta learn. We, every time we drive in here, you have to learn how to. We can pray. But modern day reasoning be that now that we know about DNA, that the fathers, the sins of the fathers, is visited upon the. But it's not. The sins of the father are not are not visited upon the offspring. Well, you're just giving an example that Rebecca was not as good as Isaac. Well, that's not what it says. Rebecca was as good as Isaac. It's that's that my point. It's just that their fathers were, were, were unequal. Because he had such a close relationship with God, like when she saw him praying, you know, when he was having a convert. Like so, then Ra- so then Rashi should have told us that he was greater in prayer, but that's not what it says. I know, I know it doesn't, but that would just be so, 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 yeah, I would have said the same thing. So maybe that's a different answer, but I'm trying to, in Rashi, my grandfather suggested that to pray, you have to achieve humility. To achieve humility, you have to achieve humility, right? Who was it easier, of Isaac and Rebecca, which one of them was easier to become humble? Rebecca. Rebecca. Because she's like, who am I? Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I, don't, I don't come from great stock. So therefore, they both were, achieved the same level of prayer, but Rebecca's path was easier than Isaac's path because her father was wicked. So she had a head start, so to speak. So because her prayer was achieved easier than his, his was more potent. So ironically, being the righteous, the son of righteous, makes it even harder to become great in some areas spiritually. This is, or, it's right? I mean, or because you have to work harder because you don't have the head start of, 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 of humility. You know, when, if, if, you know, we meet a lot of beginners in learning. You know, they don't know anything. So they come with a clean slate. I, I know I'm ignorant. I want to try to become as knowledgeable as possible. And then if people, they go to yeshiva. And they're like, you know, grew up with this stuff, Right? You know, so they, you know, they artificially have a head start, but they're also prone to a little bit of arrogance. Now, what happens when you come, come to pray? To pray is to make yourself that you are totally submitted to God. Well, the easier it is for you to do that, the less remarkable it is. And that's a rule all across spiritual growth. That the, whatever you put in, that's what you take out of it. Isaac had to put in a little bit more than Rebecca. His prayer was a little bit more potent. To the degree that it's difficult for us to do something, that's the degree of power and potency we have in that, in that pursuit. Interesting idea. Now, Rebecca is pregnant, and she's having a tumultuous and difficult pregnancy. We're told in the Midrash... Every time Rebecca passes a house of Torah scholarship, she feels kicking. She feels kicking. It's Jacob was pining to leave. Every time she passes a house of idolatry, she feels kicking, and Esau is trying is trying to leave. She is disturbed by this. She goes to visit the prophet. Is it the prophet or the the, uh, the get, get advice? And he tells her. What does he tell her? You have twins. You have twins. One of them's going to be 
A tzaddik. A tzaddik, and one's going to be a rasha. Right, reward. So, and then a rasha. means a wicked. So, and then she seems to be placated. To me, it's a little bit bizarre the fact that if you now know you're going to ha- you have a problem child, like why? What was her problem, and why was she mollified? It seems like Rebecca is telling us a very tremendous insight. Rebecca initially thought she had one child, but a child was trying to live a double life. He was trying to have everything. He wanted to have the idolatry. He wanted to have the Torah. And to Rebecca, that is someone who didn't choose his allegiances. You know, we have in our life these doors. This is Midrash, isn't it? This is not... Well, we know that... This, well, this isn't in the Torah. Well, this, what we do know is that, is that she did find out she had twins. And that, that and the, the twins, one righteous one and one wicked. Before she bear, bore them, she found out the Torah... Yes, yes, she, yes, yes, yes. Two that, twins and you're... It, at that time? She figured it out. They figured it out. And, and not only that, there's going to be one great one who's going to be the Jewish people, which is going to be Jacob, and one of them is going to be his nemesis's arch foe. But what is interesting is that Rebecca teaches us a lesson. And the lesson is, is that it's worse for someone to not choose their allegiances and to try to do everything than for us to be righteous or wicked. Yeah, you know, there's doors. There's the door to righteousness, the door to wickedness. We like kind of keeping our options open. We like having this optionality to straddle both fences, so to speak. There's a great uh, Yiddish axiom. It's, it's such a great, it's so Yiddish and so great. And it says, Mekenesh Tansen of Beit Chasnas. It's like you have these two weddings in town on either side of town. You can't dance by both weddings. You know, if you have two weddings to go to at the same evening, you have to choose. You go to this wedding or that wedding? Or you can go to none. Or you go to none, but, but you can't go to both. And what Isaac is telling, uh, Rebecca here, her, her, you know, her concern was she had only one child, and the one child is like a split personality, is displaying you know, uh, a, a dedication towards idolatry and Torah. Those two, you know, what does that mean about him? It, it means that they, you know, they're, they're conflicted. If I know I'm a tzaddik, I'm good. Or if I know who's that. But if I choose to become a tzaddik, I'm good. If I choose to be a rasha, it's also not so bad because at least I know who I am. When someone is a rasha and a tzaddik together, they think, what do you mean? I'm a tzaddik. Right? They can't be helped almost. It's easier to like lift the first step of the 12 steps is always to recognize I'm powerless against, against the alcohol right? and I need to work. When someone is, when someone is like, well, what do you mean? I go to the house of study. I'm dedicated to that. And that becomes part of their identity. They never recognize that there's a, a need to actually face up and address their, their issues. Yeah. Uh, did you say earlier she went and talked to a prophet? Well, reading here in, in the Torah, how do they translate she it? She went and to inquire of Hashem, and Hashem said to her two nations. Well, that's how would you do that? You would do it by talking to a prophet, right? She could have. I'm sure she did. Well, or maybe she was, but she wasn't uh, granted with that insight. 
But God didn't talk directly to, isn't the Torah pretty clear on that, other than Moses and maybe Abraham? Uh, Just Moses. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that there's, no, there's no clarity in prophecy. No, I, I, I understand. Okay, yeah, direct communication in the form where nothing is added or subtracted or any sort of contribution of the prophet is only Moses. It doesn't mean that the prophet Ezekiel didn't know what God was ta- telling him, or the prophet like Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or so King David. So God didn't talk to Abraham directly, or he did he? Uh, he did not talk to Abraham directly. He talked to Abraham via emissaries or via imagery of sorts. And by the way, there is a commentary, one of the great commentaries in the Torah of uh, the past 200 years, of the Maharil Distin, who was a uh, sage and scholar who lived in the 19th century, who he asked a question, back to Abraham for a second, just that you, now that you mention it. His question was, what's the big deal about Abraham's binding of Isaac? Why is this such a big deal? If God told you to do it, you're a prophet, right? What's the big deal? Of course you're going to do it. He's a prophet after all, right? That's his question, which, you know, we'll take his question, um, you know, with... Uh, but how do you know he was a prophet already? Well, we know Ramavin was a prophet. Hashem says, go, go sacrifice your child. So he says his test was his interpretation of the signs. Because the prophecy that Abraham had was in the form of imagery that he was given from God. He had to alone decrypt what the message was. And his inherent bias would compel him to try to understand it a little bit differently. Like, no, he doesn't really mean to sacrifice Isaac, he means something else. And that's where the test is. The test is in how he's going to apply the prophecy. Will he invoke his own inherent desire to preserve his child and thus play around a little bit with the integrity of the message? Okay, so uh, now just quickly here. Uh, Isaac wants to leave Israel. He says he's he's told no. There's the story of the wells. What's going on there is a little bit unclear. Uh, I think we could for sure draw two lessons from it. Number one, one of the dumbest things someone could ever do is to fill a well in the, in, in, in the Middle East. You know, the biggest problem you'll face if you're a country or a people in the Middle East is water. And the idea of Isaac digging a well and that being filled in by his enemies is an example of self-destructive Jew hatred. Sometimes the people who are the antagonists of the Jewish people will do things that will injure themselves. But as long as it injures the Jews alone, they're happy. The fact that there is water, plentiful water, in the form of these wells, but they're Isaac's wells? Let me torpedo that, even if it means self-destruction. But additionally, we're told that these three wells that are described in, in Genesis actually are representative of the three temples. And the fact that Isaac is the one with whom the story of these wells and the representation of the, of the Holy Temples of Jerusalem is told tells us, once again, the idea that Isaac is representative of something great, even though it's only hinted in, in the actual text. I want to quickly uh, go through the story of the blessing of, of the intended blessing for Esau, which ultimately became the blessing for Jacob, because I think our problem with Isaac really reaches a crescendo in this story. 
first of all, he tells Esau, he tells Esau, I want to give you a blessing. Go find me, go catch animals for me. And give me a huge rack of ribs. Now, we're told that Isaac wanted to give a blessing, a prophetic blessing that is guaranteed to be successful. If I say, Shalom Aleichem, you should be blessed. It's valuable to a certain extent. But when Isaac says, you are going to be wealthy and prosperous, it's for sure going to happen. He wants to achieve prophecy, and that prophetic blessing is guaranteed to happen. But if I asked you, how would you imagine, if I wanted to achieve prophecy, what, would be the, what, what do I do about it right now? You wouldn't say you go to the restaurant and you, and you order the biggest steak they have, and you order two of them. That's not what you would say. That doesn't seem to be the path to prophecy. And I think the insight is, is that when we grow spiritually, when we have meteoric spiritual ascension, we have to make sure that we placate and mollify and assuage our body. We find this theme again and again. David wants to achieve prophecy. What does he do? Plays music. What about music? It's nice, but it's not spiritual. It's a big debate we can have about later. But the idea is, is that if you want to grow spiritually, you have to throw a bone to your body. Because your body is resisting. Your Yetzirah is resisting spiritual ascent. But if you link the spiritual greatness with some way of taking care of the body as well, then there could be unison of purpose towards this spiritual reason. I'll give you an example what we do with kids, for example. A child comes to shul. What's the first thing a child does in shul? He makes a beeline for the candy man. That's right. In our shul, there's multiple candy men. They make the trips. And then they make the trips for their brothers and sisters and uncles and cousins and everyone else. Got to make sure, got to take care of them, right? Now, why would you have in a shul, in a spiritual uh, place of, of growth, why would you have someone giving out candies? Because a lot of times, the only time you give out candies on Shabbos and Shabbos is a holy day. Okay, but also, we want to show the kids that a shul is a place where we should have everything. Where it's not just you're going to talk to God and be very serious. and right? That's also true. But you want to make sure that the body is also taken care of. So you have the spiritual and the physical, and then you can have the ascent without the detractors. A lot of people say, they want to, you know, it, a lot of people want to work really hard. It's also important to work really smart. There's no need to create more problems than necessary. You know, you want to make sure that every part of your entity, uh, of your being, is happy. A lot of people think, we're going to give up, we're going to forfeit for God. It's a mistake. We're not giving up anything. We're not giving up anything. We're going to have the happiest, most robust life in totality. We're not giving up anything for God. We may think we're giving up something. Our body may convince us of that, but it's really not true. We're We're not giving up anything. We're actually improving every area of our life when we dedicate ourselves to God. This, this idea of, let me trade. I'll do a trade-off. I'll give up this world in favor of next world. I'll give up. I'll, 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 I'll suffer. I'll let my body suffer so my, so my spirit, my soul can soar. That's a mistake. What you're giving up is not the physical material. You are just using the physical material 
in a way that is complementary to the overall o- overarching goal. That's the only difference. The difference is, are you taking the physical as an end unto its own, or are you making it a means towards unification of purpose? And ultimately, by the way, the, the physical itself is more pleasurable when it's linked to the spiritual. So actually, you're getting more pleasure even in aggregate in the, in the spiritual realm. Because the Almighty baked into physical pleasure a detractor. That if, if it becomes a focus onto its own, you never actually get the accomplishment. You never get the sense of fulfillment in that arena. Because it's, it's, like, it's like a drug. You become, you, become, you become an addict, you become dependent, and you, and you have hangovers. But when done in unison with a spiritual pursuit, it's actually more wonderful. And even the physical gets the benefit. So, what happens here? So there's a very critical disagreement between Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac believes that Jacob should be in sole dedication to Torah. I want to establish something very clearly. If you look at the end of the Parsha, when, at the end of, of Parsha's told us, when Isaac sends Jacob away, he tells him, that, you're, that may you have the blessings of Abraham. So this is from chapter 28. So Isaac summoned Jacob and blessed him. He instructed him and said, Do not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Padan Aram, that's Basuel. Find, take a wife there from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may the Almighty bless you, make you fruitful, make you numerous, and may you be a congregation of peoples. May he grant you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may possess the land of your soldiers which God gave to Abraham. He's giving I, uh, Jacob the blessing of Abraham. So which blessing did he give Jacob when Jacob stole the blessing? Which one was that? Yeah. Anyway, he really owned it, but which but when he kind of stole it? May God give you the dew of the heavens and the fatness of the earth and abundant grain and wine. People will serve you, and regimes will prostrate themselves to you. Be a lord to your kinsmen, and your mother's sons will prostrate themselves to you. Cursed be those they who curse you, and blessed be they who bless you. There's no mention of Abraham, no mention of the land of Israel. Isaac intended to give this blessing to Esau. He was tricked into giving it to Jacob. That's, but why, that, but, that, that, that's why there, there was the last test. That's right. Because the Mahalchim were crying. That's right. That's right. He didn't know. But oh, yeah. he, doesn't, he doesn't mention anything about the blessing of Abraham, land of Israel. None of that's mentioned. And this is what he's giving to Esau. And then when he's aware that Jacob is going away, he gives him the blessing of Abraham. Clearly, Isaac never intended of giving, giving Esau the blessing of Abraham. <coughs> never. He was always planning on giving that to Jacob. The only difference is was Jacob going to get both blessings, both the spiritual and the physical? Did Rebecca know that? Both Isaac and Rebecca knew that their legacy, their spiritual continuity, will be in the form of Jacob. 
Rebecca was more pragma, a pragmatist. Isaac, the theme of Isaac is that he re- was representative of the attribute of judgment. That's how he's known in Jewish liturgy. That's how he's known in Jewish literature. He's always spoken about it in the attribute of judgment. Now, what that means, it means precision. The Talmud tells us, as an example, if the Almighty only operated with the attribute of judgment, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will not be able to stand the test, the fierceness of God's judgment. Isaac was someone who his quality was the quality of judgment. Therefore, the Torah treats him likewise. Thus, the Torah mentions nothing of his accomplishments, and the Torah highlights and amplifies his slight errors. If you look at the Torah, it makes him look like he was almost senile, deranged. He totally, he didn't realize that Jacob was Jacob and Esau was Esau. That's what it makes it look like. He liked Esau because Esau made him delicious food. It's tremendous criticism. And it's really not appropriate for Isaac. But Isaac was someone who developed a philosophy of absolute precision, of absolute judgment. Therefore, the Torah treats him in kind. Therefore, all of his accomplishments are related to Abraham. Even the test of the binding of, Aza, uh, of Isaac, he's not even mentioned at all as a hero. Uh, we're not told any, almost anything of his accomplishments. And we're led to believe that he favored Esau as his successor over Jacob. But what is true is that he knew all along that Jacob was going to be the one who's going to have the blessing of Abraham, who's going to have the, going to have the nation that's going to fulfill the Abrahamic mission. But Isaac's idea of how that would look, how the nation would look, was in line with his life philosophy, that it's going to be with this idea of precision, this idea of not having any, any physical largesse outside of a spiritual realm. He said, that should be for, for, for Esau. Let Esau have that. Rebecca was the pragmatist. Rebecca was the one who realized that the Jewish nation, that Jacob, which would become Israel, would only survive and thrive if they also had a little bit of breathing room in the form of physical material excess and greatness. But there was never for a second a time were Isaac ever entertained to give Esau the, uh, the, the blessing of Abraham. Now, Rebecca, with her foresight, she understood that the Jewish nation wouldn't, wouldn't survive like that. So she created the subterfuge to give Jacob both blessings. Now, this idea of what, what does it look like to have a nation living with the attribute of judgment. If we want to know a bit, a, a bit about it, uh, we look at Rabbi Akiva. If you actually look, this is, I don't want to get too, you know, we're already over time, but you look at the way Rabbi Akiva was treated and the way he wants, Rabbi Akiva mirrored Isaac in that Rabbi Akiva was someone 
who live by this principle and even die by this principle. And you even look at some of the words that are used to describe um, the attribute of judgment and the words that describe the story of, of, of Rabbi Tiva, and they're identical. Rabbi Tiva is someone who was terribly tortured um, by the Romans. Yet, he was delighted every second of it, which is bizarre to us. But Rabbi Tiva was someone who wanted the precision of judgment. He wanted to have every shred of his quote-unquote punishment for his minor misdeeds to be accounted for in this world. To us, it's unthinkable. And to us, it's, you know, we're grateful of Rebecca's foresight. But we gain an insight a little bit about what Isaac's rationale was, what his decision-making was, what his own personal qualities were, and thus we understand a little bit of how the Torah treated him. Now, we find this continuum between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was the one who developed the idea and tried to disseminate it. Isaac was the one who took this idea and didn't teach. He wasn't a teacher. He was an internalizer. Isaac took the idea, the ideas that Abraham spawned and developed and disseminated and internalized it. He was insulated. He didn't go. He didn't leave his place. He was, he, he, you know, he was static. But was he static spiritually? No, because he was constantly trying to internalize those lessons. Jacob, we're going to learn as someone who's going to, who's going to take it and ultimately bring it to, it to its, its conclusion. And the parallels between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mirror the parallels of Jewish history. Jewish history begins where Abraham is born into a family of idolaters. He is the one who is the initial force of resistance to those ideas and developing of a new philosophy. Isaac is representative of the Jewish nation that has Torah, but it's insular, but it's insulated. We're in Israel, we're not leaving Israel, and we are reinforcing our spiritual fabric. Jacob is the one who is going to be the completion. Remember, Jacob is renamed Israel. Because the, na- the ultimate purpose of the nation is where the Jewish ideal is not just kept at home, but is disseminated to the world, bringing the world to completion. That's what the Jewish nation, that's what Israel is representative of. But I think it's possible to say that without the stage of Isaac, no, no greatness to be achieved. There is this idea, you develop an idea, you have inspiration to want to have an idea, you have to internalize it before you teach it to others, before you actually fulfill the ultimate dream of that idea coming to reality. Abraham was a great disseminator of his idea. He taught tens of thousands and myriads of followers. But we mentioned last week, where are those people? We don't know where those people are. There was something lacking with Abraham's of course, Abraham was, you know, his greatness is unparalleled. He's maybe the second greatest man that ever lived. But he still needed the, we, the Jewish people needed the Isaac stage before it got the Jacob and Israel stage, which is the nation in its completeness. And I think it's, it's really a representative of, of every, every, every greatness, every pursuit of greatness. There has to be the discovery, the initial discovery of the idea, and then there's the internalization of that idea, 
before that dream of that idea in its completion can be fulfilled. We look at the three wells and the three forefathers and the three temples and the three daily prayers and the three revelations, like we mentioned, the three eras in history. 2,000 years, chaos. 2,000 years, Torah. 2,000 years, Mashiach, like we spoke about uh, multiple times in the past. Being represented of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Three daily prayers, three Shabbos prayers. Remember we spoke about the three Shabbos prayers. Three Shabbos prayers. All these things, you see the same parallel. You see discovery of, a, of an idea, internal development of the idea, mass proliferation, and universal ubiquity of that idea's acceptance. Um, Isaac, indeed, is, is, is the most difficult one for us to understand because it's an internal, it's an internal greatness. We don't see... If you were to see Isaac, you examine his life story, you don't see where his greatness is achieved because it's internal. And that's why the Torah goes out of its way to obscure it. But it is necessary and vital. And, it's, you know, and the idea, maybe it's onto its own, is, is, is a crucial lesson for us that greatness is sometimes beneath the surface. And it's not present, and it's not visible, and you can't necessarily see transformation. But is, is it any less real? Absolutely not. So I think, in conclusion, the one thing we learn about, um, about Isaac uh, is certainly to dispel the myth that he was just this, you know, he, he, was, he, he, you know he, he had Alzheimer's and he just didn't get it. That's a mistake. Uh, but it, but it, you read the, the text very quickly and that impression is, is given. Why that impression is given, what he represented, uh, but also the lessons that we can draw from his story, but also his personality uh, is critical. And that is that sometimes, or a critical stage of every growth process is internal. And without that, it doesn't actually, it can't actually, we, you know, we cannot bring it to the finish line without that. Uh, next week, we're going to delve into Jacob and becomes Israel. A very, very, very colorful character and a very colorful life, life story. And I look forward to seeing you all then. And thank you all for coming. Lots of fun. Thank you. Thank you very much.